0: Welcome to Health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. You guys know I take my sponsorships really seriously here on this podcast. I want to introduce the sponsor for the next five episodes in the Women's Health by Heather Hirsch podcast, The Millie Device. The Millie device is an all-in-one vaginal trainer with millimeter-by-millimeter gradual expansion and built-in vibration, helping women overcome vaginal tightness and dryness, which leads to vaginal penetration or insertion difficulties. For more information, go to millieforher.com, and that is spelled M-I-L-L-I-F-O-R-H-E-R.com. You definitely want to check this out. Thank you, Millie, for sponsoring today's episode. All right, guys, welcome back to the show. Today, I'm really, really thrilled. I have Dr. Becky Lynn with me. She is the CEO and founder of Evora Women's Health, and she's also an adjunct associate professor of OBGYN at St. Louis University in St. Louis. And today we are talking, just kind of having a conversation surrounding midlife menopause, libido, and sex. What more fun could we have? This is it, the most fun. (laughs) So welcome to the show. And tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you got interested in particularly midlife women's health.
1: Yeah, so um, I'm an OBGYN. And I sort of knew that I wanted to go into women's health even before I went to medical school. Um, I did some research in women's health and I loved it, but I went into medical school with an open mind, who knows what I'm going to like, and ultimately came out the other end wanting to do women's health. Um, And then within OBGYN, you know, I I practiced after I finished my residency, I practiced, just did routine OB, normal, you know, GYN stuff for six years, and then um, I ended up finding my niche in sexual medicine and menopause. And it sort of fell into my lap because I'm not afraid to talk about it. Um, Especially the sexual aspect, you know, people would come and ask me questions and I, you know, I, sort of realized the importance of it and how it was something that a lot of providers either don't feel comfortable discussing or the patients don't feel comfortable discussing, but is a really big, important part of a woman's life, sexuality. And so it was easy for me to talk about it. I found the time. You know, I took the time at that point to find ISWISH, the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. And that's where I really got all of my training in sexual medicine, because you don't learn much about it in residency. And so you really, unfortunately, hopefully that's changing, but unfortunately you have to go get that information on your own. And then I brought that information back to my practice and I could really help my patients. And as far as menopause go, you know, we were saying before we started recording how much sexual issues in women overlap with menopausal problems. Not always, 20 year olds can have, uh, problems with sexuality in 25-year-olds and 30-year-olds, um, but at the menopause, when your hormones are changing or you, you, know, you lose your estrogen, your testosterone is low, it can really, really affect sexuality, not just libido, but also lead to painful sex and orgasm difficulties. So they sort of naturally came together for my practice, and I feel really strongly about treating these issues and educating women and advocating for women in this space.
0: Yeah. How do you find success in having these conversations with your patients? Do you, at this point, they probably know you as the doctor who knows a lot about this, but starting out, how did you find success in, in breaking that gap in midlife care? Um, I think that
1: I, I mean, I think that I'm sort of naturally non-judgmental and easy to talk to. And I, and I, I, I I say thank you to my mother because my mom is the same way. And I think she taught me to listen and not make people feel bad about the issues that they're having. I I tell her all the time, I am who I am because of her, but um, that I just, I feel, and I I don't think there's any like special training. It's just, and that's probably part of the reason I went into being a physician because I, I feel that way. So I really, you know, I set up an easy environment for women to talk about because both sexuality and menopause, you know, menopause are some huge changes in a woman's life, but women don't learn about that, right? We talk all about puberty. We talk about don't get pregnant, don't get STDs, but we don't tell you that, you know, painful sex is going to happen a couple of years after your periods stop. So, um, and it's embarrassing. It's very embarrassing sometimes for women to bring up. And one thing that I notice, and I've heard a couple times in my practice is women will come in and they're like, oh my gosh, you know, sex is painful. I have terrible vaginal dryness. My partner thinks I don't like him anymore. And the woman's like, that's not the issue. I don't know why it's dry, but they had no idea it had anything to do with the menopause because mm-hmm. it happens mostly a couple years after. And so they're terrified. And And so it's, you know, it's really important to make sure that women know all of the changes that happen
0: during the menopause. I know. I certainly couldn't agree with you more. Listening is such a such a value. And I find that patients find it very rare these days mm-hmm. for doctors to be able to take the time to listen. And right. when, you, when you do, what are some of the most common scenarios or common complaints that you hear pretty commonly? I know you were touching on them.
1: Mm-hmm. So I would say that the two most common issues, well, three now, three most common issues that I see are low libido, painful sex, and weight gain which goes along with the menopause. So Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's just, I, I guess I would lump weight gain with the whole constellation of menopausal symptoms. So hot flashes, night sweats, mood swings, brain fog, joint aches, painful sex, low libido, like there's a whole constellation of those that go together. In fact, I talked to somebody this morning who she just didn't know where to turn because she just you know, could name the list of all the things that were going on. So I think that whole, you know, sort of, I want to say menopause syndrome, that doesn't sound very good, but you know, like that whole constellation of symptoms and then also painful sex and low libido. Those would probably be my top three.
0: Yeah. Well, let's jump into treating painful sex. Mm -hmm. So in my brain, and I would love to know if you do it differently, but I always say, if it's painful, I can fix your libido, but then we're still going to have a rate limiting problem here. It's going to hurt. So how do you like to talk about workup, treat painful sex? You know, what are the, I mean, we could talk about this forever, but Cliff's Notes version.
1: Yeah. So painful sex is actually really complex, but if I had to break it down into what I see, I see many women who are menopausal who have painful sex due to vaginal dryness and loss of elasticity at the menopause. But another segment of my practice is women with endometriosis, interstitial cystitis, irritable bowel syndrome, maybe vulvodynia and vaginismus. Um, And so that's a much different visit than someone who comes in and says, You know, I'm doing fine everywhere, but I have vaginal dryness when I have sex and it's making it hurt. Um, And so that's a little bit more straightforward of a workup. Um, and, you know, when it comes to like what I'll ask about, a lot of times, you know, I'll, I'll be like, where is your pain? Is it with deep penetration? Is it right on entry? Does it feel dry? Are you using lubricants? What have you tried? Um, in those menopausal women, I'll also always check for pelvic floor muscle spasm um, because that is a response to pain. So um, what I've noticed is because I am very much a referral center in many aspects, women will go to their regular OBGYN, they'll get some sort of topical or local vaginal hormone, but they don't get better. And they don't know why. And then they come to me and I can see that the hormones are working, that they're estrogenized, um, but they have pelvic floor muscle spasm. And so that's a completely different treatment. you treat that with pelvic floor physical therapy. um, So then they can get better that way.
0: Yeah. Let's diverge into pelvic floor physical therapy a little bit. I think this is such a good topic for women to hear about again and again, because whenever I initially bring it up. Sometimes people are always like, you want me to go to physical therapy for my vagina?
1: Exactly. Exactly. So I have that same response and I still do. So I actually, what I did, I have a YouTube channel and on my YouTube channel, I have um, one segment where I talk with one of our pelvic floor physical therapists about, you know, she describes what she does, how it works, what she can treat, and so when my patients give me that wide-eyed, "What is gonna, What are you doing?" Then I say, "Oh, just look at my YouTube channel," and I actually have three videos on there that where I've um, interview uh, different pelvic floor physical therapists because yes, it sounds really weird. But the thing is, is that it works, and I have so many patients come back, and they're like, "Oh, I was so skeptical. I wasn't going to go, and I did, and I'm so glad I went." They really work wonders.
0: That's wonderful. I will link the uh, channel below this podcast, so you can check those out on her YouTube channel. That's. Wonderful resource. Awesome. Let's also dive into vulvodynia and interstitial cystitis. We'll sort of dissect these one at a time, because I think these are really important etiologies or reasons for pelvic pain that are, you know, as you said, sort of an offset from just dryness at menopause that we treat with estrogen. So tell us a little bit about vulvodynia and the differences between just genitourinary syndrome of menopause or GSM.
1: Yeah. yeah. So vulvodynia um, means pain in the vulva without a clear reason or a cause for that. So you do an exam, you don't see any lesions, you know, you don't see lichen sclerosis or any one of the lichens, and they just have pain in the vulva. And vulvodynia can happen all the time where the vulva always hurts, or it can be provoked vulvodynia or you know, most times provoked vestibulodynia, which is just a part of the vulva, the vestibule is. um, And, you know, these women get treated for yeast infection after yeast infection. A lot of times they describe it as a burning, itchy feeling um, and they just don't get better. And so you have to think what are, you know, if you're the practitioner, what am I missing here? Why is she not getting better when we keep you know, treating her for yeast.
0: Um, Or you do
1: a culture, you know, you do a workup for that or find that it's not yeast and she still has that burning feeling or that feeling like a raw sensation or swelling. Um, And vulvodynia, the thing with vulvodynia is we don't really have an FDA approved treatment for it, probably because there are different types of vulvodynia and um, different causes of vulvodynia. So I heard somebody say one time, and I think this is so true, Everything works for vulvodynia 50% of the time. Meaning like, you know, it's a little bit of trial and error in treating it. But you know, what I do wanna say about vulvodynia and interstitial cystitis, and I think this is really important for women who have pelvic pain. You may present with just vulvar pain, right? Maybe that's the main thing that's really bothering you, that itchy burning. you're going to see your OBGYN for this itchy burning. But a lot of times vulvodynia travels with interstitial cystitis, with irritable bowel syndrome. They, they try, it's a pain syndrome. And a lot of times you'll see anxiety and depression also. And if you, have, if you go to a vulvar specialist, not all but some may not ask you about bladder symptoms they may not ask you about bowel symptoms and so if you only treat the vulvar symptoms they're not going to get completely better because you need to treat the bladder and the bowel and then if they have anxiety and depression on top of that anxiety and depression turn up the amplifier on pain so they make your brain hear it so much louder. So a lot of times chronic pelvic pain patients will be like, they tell me it's all in my head. Well, it's not all in your head, but if you have anxiety and depression, it's just that the amplifier is way turned up on that pelvic pain. So I think it's really important if you have chronic pelvic pain like that, that you see a pelvic pain specialist who can evaluate and treat everything that's contributing.
0: What an aha moment. Like that's a really great. That's a really great way of explaining it. That you know really encompasses how we were both saying we we don't love the word holistic, but how you really have to look at the female body from head to toe, and how the female body is so complex and just really is so intertwined in all these different organ systems, and they can like overrun one. Yeah. That is so interesting. Oh, and
1: I didn't talk about endo. That's the other main one that fits into there. The endometriosis, IC, IBS, vulvodynia, anxiety, depression.
0: Yeah. So what, what would give clue you into someone if, that they had endometriosis? And when they're postmenopausal, does you know, the endometriosis tend to sort of quiet down? Or do you see all sorts of strange things at menopause with endometriosis?
1: Um, I would say for the most part, it quiets down. Um, but yes, you know, I, I do see a lot of endometriosis premenopausally. Um, and you know, the classic signs and symptoms of of endo are painful menstrual cramps that might spill over and become just, you know, pelvic pain all the time. As far as menopause goes, um, because you lose your hormones and hormones are what stimulate endo, women uh tend to get better with that pain, but they can have residual pelvic floor muscle spasm. And so you gotta be looking for that because if you're not looking for that, you're not gonna find it and be able to treat it. And so it's really important to to pick up on that, especially if they had endo when they were younger. Yeah. How
0: do you pick up on a pelvic floor spasm? I yeah. on exam, but Walk us through, because I know so many of my listeners are so proactive, and they're going to like go look this up or want to know if they can figure it out themselves. How, would, how yeah. does the clinician know if you have that?
1: Yeah. So I would say the classic history that I hear patients say time and time again, time and time again, is he's hitting a wall. He can't get in they're worried there's some sort of tissue blockage why can't he get in but they go to the doctor and no no everything's open so hitting a wall is definitely what i hear Um, other people will say i tense up Um, and then on exam what we do is we palpate the pelvic floor muscles and the way that i describe the pelvic floor muscles to patients is that if you think of a skeleton right and there's like the hip bone there's a hole in the middle and you would think everything would fall out, but in the human body, there's a hammock of muscles that kind of sit on that opening, and your uterus sits on it, the bladder sits on it, the vagina goes through it, and it's those muscles that surround the vagina that kind of spasm and and cause pain. So you can, as a, a physician, when you do your exam, you can put fingers in the vagina and you press on the muscles, the different muscles, and say, does that bring on your pain? And some people are like, yes, that's it. Other people, their muscles are so tender, they jump off the table. And other people, you go to do an exam and you can see their bottom tense up. You can just see it. And so that, and sometimes you can't do an exam on those people, which is fine because you have your diagnosis, because you can see it right in front of you.
0: Does Ishwiss have the same type of find an Ishwiss doctor that NAMS does? Yes. Oh, wonderful. You can find a provider who's part of this wish. That's a wonderful resource. Okay. So I will, what we mean by that is this is probably a provider who has had a lot of the in-depth training that Dr. Becky Lynn has sort of sought out even after her OBGYN residency so that she could be an expert in this. And there are several, not as many as we wish, but there are several wonderful trained um, clinicians as well as public for physical therapists so I will also include a link to that because women often find even if they have the knowledge they have to convince or talk to their clinician to find the right doctor which is why we're so active doing podcasts and YouTube and getting the word out there right right right
1: And one thing I'll say just to put this in here is that, you know, when, when women do have pelvic floor muscle spasm, we send them to physical therapy. That's like, you know, gold standard first line treatment. We also do use dilators. And so one thing that I do when I talk about dilators, especially with vaginismus, you know, you can use them to dilate, but you don't always use them to dilate. So I use them in women with vaginismus to desensitize So basically you can put a dilator in the vagina and, you know, I tell my patients just sit there, read a book, stare at your phone, you know, whatever, watch a movie, whatever, let it sit there and you retrain your brain to say, oh, there's something in the vagina, it's not hurting. And so you start really small and then you kind of slowly increase, slowly increase. You can gradually go up in size until it gives you the confidence to know that you can have something in the vagina and it's not going to hurt. So dilators are huge in, you know, a huge part of treating
0: pelvic floor muscle spasm. That's wonderful. Do you have any favorite dilators that you like?
1: Yes. Yeah, so um, we in our office, we do have the milli dilator, which is amazing. I'm not just saying that. Um, and so the benefit of the Millie is that it, it increases by like one millimeter in size each click. So it's really small. You never, like with somebody with pelvic floor muscles, you don't wanna start big or you can't force anything that'll just you know, take you a step backwards. So it increases in size by like a milliliter each time you press the button, which I think is really good for women who, you know, if you look at some of the standard dilators, it's like a small and then it's a big. So that's, you know, that's not going to work, even though it's, it's, you know, billed as a medium or something. Um, so the Millie really is like slow, slow, slow increase. And I think that gives women the confidence that it's going to work, that it's going to be okay, because if they're anxious, that it's not going to work, you spasm. Yeah. It's a natural response.
0: Yeah, I always say, I wonder if, what you think about it, but I always say more painful intercourse equals more painful intercourse. You just okay. reform those connections like, yeah. ah, that hurts, don't come in here.
1: Exactly. It's all about retraining your brain. I like that. I like that
0: quote. I, I love that. I, <laughs> I love that idea of just sitting and watching your movie. Yeah. Um, so let's let's jump ship a little bit to libido. Okay. And so we kind of talked about if it's painful, and I think it was a great conversation not just on its pain, it's painful, but like, then what if it's still painful after what a lot of people talk about, like vaginal estrogen, then it's, you know, you might need to look at other etiologies and other reasons and use other methods to make sure it's treated. So, Mm -hmm. so let's switch into low libido and what is sort of, what is the natural women are always wondering if it's normal for their libido to change and what is, what should be normal? Right,
1: so there really is no normal. Um, it is it is so common that women feel like their libido is not enough, and so you know the question is, well, how much libido is the right amount? Uh, and libido, but it, there's no right or wrong answer, and I. I'd like to talk about also desire discrepancy sometimes. Yes, there's pe- people could have really low libido for a variety of reasons, but a lot of times within a couple, there's a desire discrepancy because men have like 10 times more testosterone than women do. Libido is highly dependent on testosterone, but not only dependent on testosterone. There's a lot of other neurotransmitters that are involved and other hormones that are involved, but so, you know, a lot of times I say, you know, and I'm being heteronormative, I realize not every couple is a man and a woman. But just for, you know, generalization, you know, a woman may say, I want to have, you know, I rarely want to have sex, my husband wants sex all the time. And so it's definitely a difference. Um, or she may say, I want it every couple of months, or I want it once a week, and he wants it every day. So it's important to reassure women that that's normal. But the issue becomes, is it affecting your relationship? Because low libido or dire discordance can cause some major problems in a relationship and those can spill over into the family. And and so it is something important to address. Um, And the other thing about libido that I think is so important is it is so complex. It's not just here, take this pill, you'll be better. Um, because there's so many things that play into it, your relationship status, Um, How well do you communicate? What did your parents teach you about sex drive growing up? Um, Do you have other um, medical issues? Do you have diabetes or depression or do you have cancer? Or, you know, there's so many other things that play into low libido. So I think it's important when somebody comes with low libido to be able to have the time to have that discussion, to figure out what's going on. Because if you just say, oh, here's the medicine, you're fixed. It, it's not going to work. <laughs> so I feel like, yeah, sometimes we do use medicine, and I use medicines a lot, but it's part of a more comprehensive, holistic <laughs> approach. Comprehensive approach. So
0: I like how you said it can spill over into family and it can spill over into. Hence, therefore, even anything, you know, you get a text at work and it throws you off or, you know, it can really spill over into life. And I think that's why it's such a huge aspect of health that has gone so ignored in medical training um, and it is so complex. You hit all the nails on the head. So I was going to say, how do you help patients prioritize? It sounds like first you use the big key of time. Let's like talk about this whole thing. And then how do you kind of help them prioritize and work through what's going to be the next best thing for them, whether it's therapy or medications or et cetera?
1: Yeah. So I like to present all their options. And here's the risk benefit side effects of all your options and then you choose. And so I typically start with the non-invasive, the non-medicine thing. So, you know, I'll say he wants sex every day, you want it never or once a week, where can you meet in the middle? How can you find a solution that works for both of you? I often talk about, you know, Setting a date night. Um, women have heard of this all the time, but th- a lot of times they'll say, Oh, but it's not spontaneous. And my answer to that is, Was sex ever really spontaneous? Because even when you were younger, you were going on a date, you put on your pretty underwear, your nice bra. So, like, how spontaneous was that really? Because you were prepared. Or the other way to look at it is to say, It's an erotic play date, rather than, Oh, I have to put this on the calendar. You know?
0: <laughs> I like so, that.
1: Yeah, just like reframe it in your mind. Um, I'll talk about sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, like building anticipation, send your spouse a text. I'm a huge proponent, you know, text uh, uh, in the middle of the week saying, hey, sexy, or just sort of like building that anticipation. Um, I also recommend m- all the time, erotic reading or erotic listening. Um, You know, just because those neurons in your brain that think sexual thoughts or see the world sexually, they're out of shape. Let's say you've had three kids, you haven't been having sex, you work all day, you're exhausted all night at night, you're not thinking sexually. So if you just put erotic reading on the calendar and say, I'm going to do this like 10 minutes, you know, it doesn't have to lead to anything, it's just by yourself. Um, then it just gets those neurons firing again. So you're sort of exercising your erotic brain. Yeah. And if you're listening, you could be the happiest mom in the carpool line. <laughs> so, so you're listening to your dipsy, yes, And you're like, yeah, I'm here to pick up my kids.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Quickly <laughs> turn to kids bops. Um, exactly. I really like the Rosie app for that. And I'm sure yes. you've probably yes. heard of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. That's a really good tip. You're right. Just it, those neurons need to be woken up. They Mm -hmm. do. Just like you have to reframe your brain that you can have something in the vagina and that's okay. It's not going to hurt you. We have to reframe the brain so much. And I, I wonder just hearing you say all these things, like women's bodies go through so many different things than men's do Mm -hmm. that it makes it, I don't do men's health. So I don't want to speak for Mm y'all, but it seems like we have a lot more stressors that you know, we lose our hormones. We Mm -hmm. may have children. We certainly have lots more reasons for pain. And so we kind of have a little bit more that we have to overcome yet, you know, there's just such a gap in, in care for patients. Yeah.
1: yeah. And one thing I didn't mention, I shouldn't leave it out is that after I talk about the all the non-medical things, then I'll talk about the medicines that are out there. So there's flibanserin, there's remelanotide, there's testosterone. So I do talk about testosterone as well. And then the other thing that I want to mention that I think becomes very important when a woman has low libido is is she or is she having an orgasm? Because you know many women can be satisfied not having an orgasm, but So in order to have, to want to have sex, you have to have sex worth wanting. So you have to be getting something out of it. So it becomes all the more important. And I think many women will say, oh, it takes so long, especially during menopause. They say it takes too long. So don't worry about me. You know, don't worry. You'll get me next time or, or something like that. And, you know, I think when you have low libido, it's really, really important to make sure that your needs are met and, you know, sex is selfish and selfless. You do it for your partner, but you do it for yourself too.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's something that I've been excited to learn new treatment options for, which is for arousal and climax. Do you treat those differently than you do just desire in general?
1: Um, usually, when I talk to somebody about sexual issues, if they come for low libido, I always ask them about arousal, orgasm, and pain because I think they're just so they overlap. Um, But yeah, no, I'll treat arousal problems, orgasm problems, anything sexual I'll treat.
0: What are some of the craziest things you've seen people use to treat arousal, climax, desire? Because there's, I'm sure you've seen a ton of stuff. Or what do you
1: have? I've heard it all. So people sometimes are embarrassed. I'm like, you can't, you can't save me. Like I've heard it all, but mm. yeah put on the spot. I don't know. I don't know what I can think of. What have you seen?
0: I, I guess I, I, the only thing that comes to mind and actually maybe you're a good person to ask is, which is not the craziest, but it's just using like CBD oils. Now, CBD oils are now kind of being used for like everything, um, or certainly, you know, different kind of psychogenic medications. So, you know, people really want to fix this, um, but they, if they don't feel like there's anyone who knows, or they just feel like there's nothing they can do, they'll try to treat themselves.
1: So, so I don't know if you know this, Heather, but that's where my research is in marijuana. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that. So, um, you know, it's complex because when you look at research on marijuana, how much can you really, it's been illegal. Like, you know, only more recently has it become legal medicinally and recreationally in some states. Um, But there is evidence in animals that um, THC um, does improve, um, uh, well, some of the rat mating things. So like posturing. Receptivity, you know, how receptive a female rat is for mating, proceptivity, um, you know, rats have this whole little mating ritual, but there is some data that THC does affect the sexual experience. We also know that THC affects dopamine and serotonin, which are two of the most important neurotransmitters that play a role in sexuality. In humans, we have a lot of questionnaire data, um, and the majority of those questionnaires um, that have been done over the last probably since 1970, so like 50 years, um, show that uh, using THC in moderate doses, not in excessive doses, um, can improve the sexual experience, orgasm, arousal, desire, and there's a lot of benefits when used in moderation. One thing I want to say about CBD. So I've been um, looking into CBD and studying the research on it, what we know, what we don't know. I actually give a course on cannabinoids and women's health. Um, and I was really skeptical of CBD because anything, if you look up CBD on the internet, it says it fixes everything. Does anything really fix everything? No. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So, but what I have read about CBD and its analgesic effect, um, and there is there's data that oral CBD works to help with pain. Um, And and the the doses are much higher than you'll find if you buy CBD just over the counter. But also, um, CBD binds to TRPV1 receptors, which is the same thing that capsaicin binds to. And some people, I never use capsaicin because it burns. Some people use capsaicin to treat vulvodynia. I see so many women with vulvodynia and pelvic pain and so you know what the the risks of using cbd are low so we have recommended cbd topical cbd like as a lube for our patients and purely anecdotally we have seen some really good results i'm not even making this up this is not science backed there is not science to back what i'm saying but um we've had several chronic pelvic pain patients and i don't own any cbd companies Like I'm not, you know, financially beholden to any CBD companies, but um, we've had some really good results actually both with topical CBD and then oral in really hard to treat chronic pelvic pain cases. And I do know there is research going on right now where they're looking at CBD for vulvodynia. I'm just not doing it, but I, I know somebody who's doing it. So I am just through the moon and excited to see where this goes, there's a there's excellent, there's not excellent, there's good data that uh, cannabinoids like THC actually are analgesics, like that's established in the literature. Um, but, and CBD too, maybe not as robust, um, but I'm just, you know, I can't wait to see what the research actually shows now that doors are opening to researching cannabinoids.
0: It's really exciting. I mean, I just- yeah it's so cool because we we want to do no harm and doing no harm sometimes means finding going outside the box to do no harm it's harmful right. if we don't do anything and these issues spill into relationships and spill into families they can affect quality of life just like other chronic conditions mm-hmm. and so it is exciting
1: hmm it's very very exciting and honestly when you say do no harm like the risks associated
0: with topical cbd are very I'm probably yeah no harm no harm in, yeah. involved there right so it, but it's so interesting right now that we have some new doors open where we can look where you and others can kind of look at these um options but yeah. that is so so exciting well any anything that you want to Anything else I left out or anything you want to touch on as like last remarks here?
1: So one thing I do just want to mention um, just for any listeners, and that's PGAD or persistent genital arousal disorder, which, and I'll just briefly, because I know we're at the end, um, is where women and men can get it to where they feel constantly aroused and they hate it. And it's horrible. And I feel like over the last 20 years now, there's becoming a little bit more awareness of this, but there's still many providers, physicians, nurses, you know, who have never heard of this before. And these patients are hurting and no one takes them seriously. And it's a really, really, really bad thing to have. It really affects your life. So um, if you have this and you're listening, um, I would go find a provider through ISWISH because, People who are part of this wish are familiar with this. And even if they don't have the answers, they know who has the answers and can get you the help that you need.
0: Yeah, oh, really good point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out to be uh, on the episode here. I can't wait to share this with everyone. I thank you so much for all your advocacy and patient education and your fantastic bedside manner that you have with your patients. Mm -hmm. I really am so excited to continue to learn from you. And so it's just been wonderful to be able to interview you today. So thank you guys so much for listening in. I'm going to include links in the description below of this podcast episode for things that we were discussing here. So check that out. If you like this, if you like this episode, give it a few stars, leave us a review on iTunes. That helps so much and helps the algorithm so that more women searching for these types of topics can find evidence-based sources of information from the clinicians who've really, really studied this. So thank you ladies so much. And I will see you next week for a new episode. Bye everyone. Bye Bye.